And today we're continuing in our summer series that we've been in over the last several weeks called Rhythms of Life. And I love this series because as we've gone through this series, I don't know about you, but I've been challenged. And here's what I've been challenging. This series is not just about us doing a bunch of things for Jesus, but rather it's about us growing deeper and growing stronger in our relationship with Jesus. There's a big difference there. It's not about doing things for him. It's about growing deeper in love with him. Let me, let me ask you this. Have you, ever, have you ever loved someone so much that it hurts? For some of you younger people, you're like, oh, where is he going with this? Hold on, all right, hold on. Have you ever loved someone so much that when you were apart from them, that there was just this knot in your stomach or this aching or this longing going, man, I just miss them. I just want to be back together with them because it just stinks when we're apart. It was the summer of 2004. I, would, I volunteered as a youth intern to go to summer camp, and I met this amazing girl from Florida while we were at this camp. And she was unlike anyone else that I'd ever met in all of my life. And I know you guys have probably used that line before, right? If you're sitting out there with your eyes, you better be shaking your head, yes. She was unlike any person that I had ever met. And every time I would talk to her, I'd walk away going, man, I just wish it could have lasted longer. I wish I could have just hung out a little bit longer and had more conversation and talked to her just a little bit Longer. Well, it didn't take long, and I had worked up the courage. I asked her out. She went to dinner with me. We started dating. We fell in love. And then about a year into our long-distance relationship, we lived in different states. Uh, try that one out. It was pretty tough. I lived in West Texas. She lived in Florida. But about a year into that relationship, man, I was, I was head over heels in love. And I, was, I scraped up all my change, emptied out the piggy banks, and I went to the store, and I bought a ring. And as they say, I put a ring on it, right? And I got down on my knee and I said, hey, I love you with all that I am. Will you spend the rest of your life with me? And luckily she said, yes. Only problem there is that we still lived in different states. And we were engaged for nine months. The wedding date was not till September and this was December. And that was the longest nine months of my life. I was walking around like a lovesick puppy, right? You see, when you love someone, you long to be with them. And I, I, can, I, I can remember that time going, man, I, I, whenever we were together, it was fun and it was joy and it was celebration. And then when she would go back to her home state and I would go back to West Texas, I would walk around for the next several weeks just miserable, this knot in my stomach, this lump in my throat, this aching and this longing in my heart. Go, man, I just want to be with the one that I love. I just want to be together. I wonder, do we ever feel that way about Jesus? Do we ever ache and long to be with him? See, we're going to be talking about a subject this morning that I believe is one of the most overlooked and most misunderstood spiritual disciplines and that is the discipline of fasting. You see, Christian fasting at its root is a longing. It is what John Piper in his book, Hunger for God, calls a hunger of homesickness for God. It is this 
Man, that is where my heart is. I have given my heart to Jesus. He is the one that loved me and gave himself for me. And I love him and I want to be with him. And now that I'm not with him in his presence, there's this constant yearning, this constant longing, this constant homesickness that I'm not where I'm supposed to be yet. See, let's be honest, fasting isn't a subject that most of us talk a lot about. I'm sure you haven't heard that many sermons on it, but we should. Fasting is mentioned more times than some other very important topics in the Bible, such as baptism. For instance, fasting is mentioned 77 times in the scripture, while baptism is mentioned 75 times. And I'm not trying to compare the two. I'm not trying to say one is greater than the other. So please don't hear me wrong this morning. But here's what I am saying. If something is mentioned 77 times in the scripture, do you not think that we should pay attention to it? And go, okay, if they're going to mention this 77 times, there must be something to it. Jesus talked about it often. He fasted himself. And in Matthew 6, he, said, he even tells us it's not if you fast, but when you fast, this is what you should do. So it's not just a, a recommendation from Jesus. It's actually an expectation that his followers would be people who fast. You see, most of the time, we don't talk much about fasting unless it has to do with the latest health and fitness trend of intermittent fasting or something like that, where we're trying to shed a few pounds and look our best for the summer. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. Trust me, I'm all for health and fitness. I'm all for being in shape and feeling your best. But let me tell you something. If you're just fasting to shed a few pounds, that type of fasting is not going to stir up your affections for Jesus. It is not going to make you fall more and more in love with him. So what is biblical fasting? You might be asking yourself, asking yourself, here is what biblical fasting is. Biblical fasting is a Christians. Notice I said Christian because there are a lot of non-Christians that fast for many different reasons. But Christians voluntary abstinence from food and or something physical for spiritual purposes. Now, I know this is not an easy subject to talk about, especially for me, because let me tell you something. I love me some food. I love all kinds of food. In fact, we were just in Florida a couple of weeks ago, and um, being there for 10 years, I missed some of the good seafood and, the, and all of those things. And so, man, I ate to my heart's delight the last week that we were there, and I got back and was like, man, I gotta get back in the gym. This is, this is killing me. But I love me some food. But let me, let me share with you, uh, in other words, what, another way of saying what fasting is. Fasting is this. It is saying no to some lesser physical things in order to say yes to some greater spiritual things. Are you tracking with me? It is saying no to some lesser things in order that I might say yes to some greater things. And so with all of that in mind, I want us to grab our Bibles, open it up to Mark chapter two, and I want us to look at a conversation, one of the conversations that Jesus had about fasting. As you're turning to Mark chapter two, we'll be in verse 18. Let me kind of set up what's going on here in Mark chapter two. In Mark chapter two, 
we're gonna see that right before this, in chapter two, Jesus calls this guy named Levi or Matthew, who is a Jewish tax collector. Jesus calls him and says, hey, Matthew, come follow me. And what does Matthew do? Matthew follows him. But here's what Matthew had to do in that moment. You see, tax collectors, they were very wealthy people. They collected tax from the Jewish people for Rome, but they were also able to charge anything they wanted above and beyond and keep it for themselves. People, the Jewish people hated them. They were traitors. They were despised in their own communities because they were collecting money from their peers for the Roman Empire, and they were ripping them off and keeping all that they wanted for themselves. They were greatly oppressing people financially. And here's Matthew, and that's who he is. He's been a tax collector for many, many years. He's accumulated a lot of wealth, a lot of possessions. He's got the big house in the middle of town in the gated community where everybody's looking at him going, that guy is a crooked thief, and we despise him. And Jesus comes to him and says, hey, Matthew, guess what? I want you to follow me. And Matthew, in that moment, says, okay, there's something here that is greater than everything else I've accumulated and so in that moment, Matthew has to make a decision. Will he say no to the lesser things, the worldly things, in order to say yes to the greater thing, which is Jesus? And luckily he does. He says yes. But not only does he just say yes, when he says yes, he says, man, we're going to have a party and he throws a party. He invites Jesus and the disciples and all of his friends and all of the people that would come to his house, and he throws a house party, and they have a feast. And that is where we pick up in Mark chapter two. Jesus and his disciples are there, and they are feasting, and they are partying, and they are having a good time. And in Mark chapter two, verse 18, here's what it says. It says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees, they were fasting and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins but new wine is for fresh wineskins. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the word we just read in Mark chapter two. Holy Spirit, we know that you are the one who helped pin the words on these pages, and so we ask that you would give us wisdom. Help us to see, help us to understand, help us to know what it is that you want us to know today as we look at your word. Holy Spirit, stir up our affections for Jesus, for it's in his name that we pray. And everybody said... Amen. So this passage starts out with a basic question. These guys, the John's disciples and the Pharisees, they come along and they say this. They say, why are Jesus and his disciples not fasting? You see, John the Baptist and the Pharisees, they're fasting. And so, but yet Jesus and his disciples are not fasting. 
Let me give you a little bit of historical context there as to what's going on. You see, in the Old Testament, God had commanded in Leviticus that people would fast one day out of the year in accordance with this thing called the Day of Atonement. And so in the Old Testament, God's people, they would fast for many different reasons, but fasting at its core was a yearning. It was a longing for God to redeem and restore his people. It was an aching for God's kingdom to come and be established here on earth as it is in heaven. And by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, this fasting that God had commanded all the way back in Leviticus had now become something that it was never intended to be. It had become this religious, ritualistic routine. You see, God had only asked people to fast on one day out of the year, on the Day of Atonement, but yet these super religious guys come along at some point and they think like a lot of us would think. They think if one is good, then more must be better, right? I mean, if God is asking us to fast one day out of the year, if we were to fast two days a week, 52 weeks out of the year, God will think that we're really something, right? I mean, don't we do that by default? Don't we think if I just white knuckle it and do more for God that he's gonna be pleased with me? That's what happens. We get caught up in this trap thinking that we're supposed to earn God's favor and that God is supposed to be pleased with us by all the things that we do. And he's going, you've got it all wrong. It was never intended to be this overbearing thing that most people cannot do. And that's where these guys come in is these guys step in and they're fasting because it's probably a Monday or a Thursday and they would fast every Monday and Thursday of every single week. And so John the baptizer's disciples and the Pharisees, they're fasting and they show up and they see Jesus, this Jewish rabbi and his disciples feasting. And I'm sure they were hangry, right? Any of you ever been hangry? Where your, your blood sugar drops, you've been without food and you're just a miserable human being. Anybody been there? And nobody better get in your way or you're gonna bite their head off? Hey, come on, y'all can say that you've been hangry before. Some of you are about to be hangry if I keep talking very long, right? So these guys that were fasting, they'd been without food, they were hungry, they were probably just angry and bitter and just miserable people to be around. And they're hangry, they're looking at, they're looking at, John, at Jesus and his disciples and they're like, their stomachs are growling and they're going, man, they're, they're eating steak and lobster and I'm hungry, so we're fasting, we're religious, right? We're, we're self-right, they've got all this self-righteousness brewing, they got all these things going on. And so they pose this loaded question. They're looking at Jesus going, man, why are Jesus and his disciples not fasting like us? You see, Jesus and his disciples, they were feasting. They were partying, they were full of joy, they were excited, they were hanging out with Matthew because Matthew had made a decision to choose that which was greater. And so they're, having a, they're throwing a party. These guys are asking Jesus, why aren't you guys fasting? Why aren't you guys as spiritual as us? And check this out. As Jesus answers them, he does so with this, this beautiful imagery. And, and this imagery, is, it's more than just an illustration. It's a declaration by Jesus. In his answer, Jesus makes this bold declaration about himself. You see, in the Old Testament, one of the most frequent illustrations that would be used between God and his people 
was that his people were his bride and that he was their husband or their bridegroom. All through the Old Testament scriptures, we read that the bridegroom is going to come and he's gonna forgive their sins and he's gonna establish a new covenant with them. And now here Jesus is in this moment, all these years later when the people have been reading about God coming back and God being a husband and God being a bridegroom and that he's gonna come for his bride and he's gonna forgive and restore and make all things right. And in this moment when Jesus is asked why him and his disciples are not fasting, he answers their question, but don't miss this. In this moment in Mark 2, when he answers it, he declares that the bridegroom is here. Did you see that? He says, you know the one that you've been waiting for, the one that you've been reading about, the one that you've been longing for all the days of your life? Guess what? I'm the one, I'm here, I'm the bridegroom, I'm the one that's going to establish this covenant love as a groom with Israel, embracing his bride once and for all, and I am here. Look at what he says in verse 19, he says, can the wedding guest fast? while the bridegroom is with them. Why would they fast? Jesus said, here's what you gotta understand. Weddings back then in the first century Jewish culture were a lot different than weddings are in our day and age. I don't know how long some of your weddings lasted, but mine was like, we, we, we were engaged for nine months and I was out of state, so my wife and, or my fiance at the time and her mom and dad and grandparents, they did all the work and all the planning I just had to show up. They did a lot of work and they did a lot of planning, but the wedding day itself lasted for about, the wedding was maybe an hour tops, if that. And then the reception afterward was like two hours. And guys, if you're like me, I was like this. How long are we gonna be here? I'm like, let's go. Let's get in the limo and go to the airport and go to the honeymoon and all that. Let's get on with our lives. Um, so it's pretty short, but that's not the way it was back in Jesus's day. A wedding would last days, if not weeks, and they would party and they would celebrate. I mean, it was an incredible time of celebration for the entire community to come and to, to drink and to feast and to celebrate this groom and this bride that were gonna be united. And so it was a big, big deal. And in fact, there was a rule that if you were a guest at the wedding, you were not allowed to fast because this was not a time of aching and mourning and grieving, but it was a time of joy and celebration. In other words, it's not time to fast, it's time to feast. That's what the wedding was all about. Hey, you, you don't need to fast on Monday and Thursday the way that you always do. You get to break that fast because we're gonna feast and we're gonna celebrate what God is doing in this union with this bride and with this groom. And Jesus' response, don't you love the way Jesus answers people? They come with this loaded question thinking that they're gonna put Jesus on the spot and that he's gonna answer them wrong. And then if he answers them wrong, they're gonna be able to discredit him in front of everyone. And in this moment, Jesus' response just cuts straight to the point. And he says this, he says, why would they fast when the one that they've been fasting for is finally here in their presence. 
Why would anyone fast when the bridegroom is here? You don't fast at a wedding. You don't fast when the bridegroom is here. And they have been fasting and waiting and seeking and longing for me. And I'm finally here. So why in the world would they fast when the greater thing is finally here? John the Baptist knew and understood this. Look at John 3, verse 28 and 29. It says this. It says, you see yourselves You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, don't miss this, this joy of mine is now complete. John understood who Jesus was The groom had arrived, and this was a time of joy and celebration and feasting, not fasting. But listen what Jesus says next in verse 20. In verse 20, he says, The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. You see, Jesus is pointing forward. He is saying, now is not the time to fast, but there is a time coming when I will be handed over, I'll be crucified, I'll be resurrected, and then I'm going to ascend, and I'm gonna leave, and I'm gonna go back to the Father, and in that day, then they will fast because the bridegroom is no longer in their presence. That will be a day of fasting. He tells them that the day of fasting is coming. You see, When you see and witness the price, Jesus saying, when you see and witness the price that I will pay for your sin, and when I ascend back to the Father, there should be, there will be a longing and a yearning, a homesickness, if you will, for the bridegroom to return. And that is the day that we now live in. So while we wait, there should be a longing in our hearts for his presence. Like the nine months of my engagement where my fiance was in another state, five states away, and I was in a West Texas in a waste desert west wasteland, there was an aching and a longing in my heart that we would be together, looking to that future date. And that is the way, the way, the season and the time and the place that we as the bride, the church, live in. We live in that time waiting and longing as followers of Jesus. There should be this constant desire and longing in our hearts for his return. You see, while his kingdom is here, it has not yet been fully consummated. And the bride aches and longs for the return of the groom. Jesus says that this longing that we're talking about will be expressed in fasting. He says it very plainly in Mark chapter two. He says, when the bridegroom is gone, then they will fast. That should mess with you a little bit as a follower of Jesus. You should look at that and go, man, then they will fast. Am I fasting? Am I longing? Am I looking forward to the day where I see Jesus face to face? This fasting that Jesus talks about in Mark chapter two, it is a superior fasting to the one that they had been used to in the Old Testament, the the original fast that was given in uh, Leviticus 16. Check out what he says in verse 21 and 22. He says this, he says, for no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment 
If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Jesus is saying that that old way of fasting cannot contain this new reality that is finally here in Jesus. The old way of fasting was a cry for salvation. It was a cry for a deliverer. It was a waiting for the kingdom to come and for the bridegroom to appear. But now he has come. We, as his followers, as believers, we have tasted that goodness. We know the price that he paid for our redemption. The religious leaders back then were fasting for what they did not know. But now that you and I, now that we have seen him and we know him, there is a desire that should be intensified in us. You see, when you've tasted and seen his goodness, there should be this delight in you. And it's not just a delight, a, a, a surface level delight. I'm talking about a true delight. Have you ever eaten something or drank something where when you had it, you're like, man, that is good. That is one of the best things I've ever tasted in my entire life. And here's what it does. When you taste it, when you experience it, it leaves you longing for more. It creates a craving within you. If you have tasted that the Lord is good and you experience his salvation and all that he has done for you. He loved you at your worst. He rescued you from your sins. He paid a price for you that you could never pay so that you could be fully forgiven and fully restored into relationship with the Father. I think we've gotta get up each and every day and remind ourselves of his goodness and what he has done. And then that should stir up our affections and we should say, man, I've tasted God, but I want more of it. I'm not satisfied with just what I have. I want more of you, more than anything else this world has to offer. So I'm gonna say no to the lesser things in order to run after the greater thing. I wanna hunger more for you, God, because only you can truly satisfy my soul. Listen what John Piper says. He says, if you don't feel a strong desire for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you have drunk too deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world, your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. That's a powerful statement. I don't know if any of you have ever been on a cruise. Anybody ever been on a cruise ship? Let me tell you, we lived in Florida for 10 years, and so it was pretty easy for us to go and get on a cruise because cruises like to have rooms with people in them. And so at the last minute, if they have empty rooms, they'll, they'll let you buy a ticket for a lot cheaper, and they like to fill up the room. So some of you should put that down in your next travel trip, wait till the last minute, and then book one. And so we, we went on several cruises when we lived in Florida, and I love cruises. I love being on the water. I love going to the different islands and checking things out. But here's one thing I love about cruises the food. For those of you that have been on a cruise, man, it is unreal. You can eat to your heart's content 24-7. You can go to what they call the midnight buffet and stuff your face with everything they've got in there, with chocolate cake and every other dessert. They've got ice sculptures and this. It is mind-blowing. And I, so every time we go on a cruise, uh, I come away weighing about 10, more, 10 pounds heavier than I did before I went on one. And so I can remember several of those cruises that we've been on. Dinner is a big deal. 
And so you, you get dressed up, you go to dinner, you've got the same waiter or waitress the entire time, so you get to know these guys or these gals, and every night, man, as soon as you sit down, they pull out that napkin and pop it, and they put it on your lap, and you're sitting there, and they just start bringing out the warm bread, and they bring out the butter, and it's so good, and you're just feasting on the bread, you're feasting on all that. Then they bring out a salad, then they bring out, they're like, hey, Mr. Norris, would you like to try some of these appetizers? And you're like, yes, I would, thank you very much. Bring me one of each. And so they'll bring out three, two, three, four, five, whatever, however many appetizers you wanna try, they'll bring them all out. And I always do this. I sit there and I stuff my face with all of the appetizers and all of the bread and all of the salad and I just can't say no. And then he brings out the huge entree of like steak and lobster and I'm like, Oh man, that looks so good, but I'm so full because I filled up on all of these smaller things that there's no room left for the main thing. And that's what John Piper is saying in that statement that we as believers do so often. It's not because we've drank so deeply of the things of God. It's that we've spent so much time snacking and nibbling on all the lesser things of this world that there's no room left for the greater thing, the main entree, a hunger for God and delighting in him that we've just stuffed ourselves on all this other stuff. And he says, that is why there's no room because you filled up on lesser things. So how does this fasting work in the life of a believer? How does God use fasting in our lives? And why is it important for our spiritual growth and maturity? And how do we even go about doing it? I know in a room like this, there are probably many of you that have either A, never fasted before, never even had a desire to fast, aren't even quite sure what it looks like and how you would go about it. So let me, if you're taking notes, have you write a couple things down. First one is this. This is what I believe based on what we're reading today and, how, and the scripture that we're looking at. This is what I believe fasting does for us and in us. The first one is this, is that fasting reminds us of our first love. Fasting reminds us of our first love. It's not that we loved God, but that he loved us first that he sent his one and only son for us. He gave his very best. John three sixteen tells it so plainly. For God so loved that he gave. He gave all that he had. He gave his very best in order that you and I might be forgiven and saved and restored into relationship with the bridegroom and that we could spend forever with him in his presence. And so when we fast and say no to the lesser things, we're saying yes to the greater things. We're reminded that who the one is that we've given our hearts to that he is our first love, that he is worth everything that we have. So how can, when he has given us his best, his son, how can we not say no to some smaller worldly things that, that seek to rob us of that greater thing? How can we not say no to a meal or saying no to social media or Netflix? I know I'm stepping on some toes right now. How can we not say no to some of those things? Here we go, I'm about to really step on some toes. How can we not say no to some of our hobbies like hunting and fishing and golf? And I know I'm in East Texas and I'm getting some evil eyes right now. How can I not say no to some of those lesser things every now and then in order that I might feast on the main thing, that I might spend time with the creator of the universe? 
But I would rather go spend all of my time, all of my energy, all of my effort on these idols. And I would rather worship the idol of sports and college football and hunting and all of these things that consume all of me. And I have nothing left to give to God who gave me everything. I don't know. I don't know how we can, how we can go about doing that. And I, it's something I'm stepping on my own toes. Trust me, I'm not yelling at you. I'm yelling at myself. The last, this last week, this has been a difficult message for me because I'm going, man, I am guilty. I'm guilty of trading time with the creator of the universe for a bunch of meaningless stuff that will perish and fade away. So I am guilty. I'm, I'm telling you that this morning. That is where that is coming from. And so I'm just wondering if you too might struggle with some of those things that consume you and that hold you captive and that you give everything to and get nothing in return. Second thing is this, fasting reminds me not to fill up on smaller worldly things. Jesus said, some people, listen to this, Luke 8, Jesus says this, he says, some people will hear the word of God and a desire for God, in other words, a, a small hunger for God is awakened in their hearts. But then this happens, as they go about their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life. In other words, Jesus is saying, man, they hear the good news, they hear the gospel, and there's an awakening in their hearts. A hunger is stirred up in them, and then all of a sudden, they go about their way, and all of that, that hunger, that awakening within them, it gets choked out by the worries and the stresses and the pleasures of this life. In other words, fasting helps me say no to those things and hunger for God more. Third thing is this. Fasting reminds me that the feast is coming. As you fast and as you sacrifice and as you give up some of those things, you should be looking forward to that day when you stand in the presence of Jesus and he says, come and grab your seat at the table. It's for you, it's, it's all set. The feast is here because the bride, the church and the bridegroom are now reunited back together in one another's presence and there's no reason to fast anymore so we're gonna feast. And that is what fasting here and now does is it reminds us that there is a day coming when we will no longer fast but we will feast and we will feast in the presence of the bridegroom. And I don't know about you but that gets me pretty fired up knowing that there's a place with my name on it sat at that table where I'm gonna sit at a table with Jesus in his presence and we are going to feast and we are going to celebrate all that he has done and all that he is and all that he will ever be for all of eternity. It is going to be unbelievable. And I know we got some good food around here, but we, have, we don't have a clue what we're gonna have when we get to heaven. Let me, let, let me read you what John Piper says. One more quote says this. In other words, in this age, there is an ache and a longing and a homesickness inside every Christian that Jesus is not here as fully and intimately and as powerfully and as gloriously as we want him to be. And that is why we fast. We fast 
because we have experienced and tasted and seen that he is good, but yet we know that it's the kingdom of heaven is here, but it's not fully accomplished yet. And so there is this longing, there is this waiting, there's this yearning for that day. And so that is why we fast. So in closing, let me, let me give you a couple quick three things. Uh, I wanna challenge you this morning on fasting. Maybe you've never fasted before. Maybe you have, but it's been a long time. And maybe as we've gone through this series over the summer where you've talked about uh, spending time in the word of God, meditating on scripture, spending time in prayer, and now talking about fasting, you've been doing some of those other things. But let me tell you something. When you add fasting to those things, it's like turning up the power, so to speak. When you pair up prayer and fasting or fasting and scripture reading and prayer. It's like turning up the heat. It's turning up the power and the presence of God in your life. And so I wanna challenge you new beginnings this week. Find a time, find a day where you say no to some lesser things and you say yes to the greater thing and you spend time fasting and in the presence of Jesus in prayer and reading the word. And so here's how we can do this. The very first thing is this, start small. Don't go from zero to hero. In other words, if you've never fasted a day in your life, don't, don't decide today, like, man, I'm gonna fast for 40 days like Jesus. We'll see you at the ER, all right? It's gonna be a bad day. You probably won't make it two days, all right? So not to discourage you, but here's what I would say. Start small. You, you know, babies, they don't just get up and start running. They have to scoot. Then they start crawling. Then they start learning to stand, and it looks like this. And then they take a step. The same way with us with fasting. Start small, find a day that works best for you. I'm challenging this, I would cha write it down. Find a day this week, pick it out in your schedule where you say, you know what, on Thursday, I'm gonna do without breakfast, one meal. I'm gonna start small. God, I'm gonna take that step because I desire you. I hunger for more of you in my life. I want to experience you in a fresh and real and intimate and powerful way. God, I have tasted, but now I want more it's created a craving in me and in my heart and in my soul, and I long to be with you. And so pick a day, pick a meal, start small. Next thing is this, plan what you'll do instead of fasting. Don't just say, I'm gonna skip breakfast on Thursday and then be consumed with emails and text messages. Carve out that time, and when you say, I'm skipping breakfast, or I'm skipping breakfast and lunch on Thursday, when you would normally be eating, or when you would normally be doing whatever it is that you do at that time, make sure that that is an uh, um, effective time. Make sure that you are a proactive. Make sure that you plan out what you're going to do instead of eating. And here's what I would encourage you to do. Find a quiet space get alone, get in the word and get on your knees and say, God, I desire you. I'm interceding, I'm praying for my family, I'm praying for my church, I'm praying for my community. God, I'm asking you to do these things, but most of all, I wanna experience more of you in my life. I want you to show me what the things that I need to change. I want you to show me the places, convict me of those things that I need to get rid of in my life. In other words, search my heart. God, show me if there's any way in me that's offensive towards you and forgive me of those things, God. Spend some time in his presence and cry out to him and ask him to do what only he can do in your life. Ask him to do what only he can do in your family's life and in the life of our church, in our community, that we would make much of him 
Make that time count. Don't just go hungry to go hungry. Go hungry because you hunger for more of God. And the third thing is this, fast from something other than food. If you can fast from food, and that's the way, that's, that's what the Bible always mentions and talks about when it refers to fasting. But I know that there's some of you that that's just not possible because you have health conditions, you take medications, there's a lot of other things. And so I do not want you to jeopardize your health. If you've ever struggled with an eating disorder, do not fast from food and put yourself in that position. Here's what I would say, there's a lot of other lesser things that consume you that you could fast from. You could fast from this little thing, that social media. You could fast from that Netflix stream, that, that marathon you've been running. You could fast from Xbox. You could, I know teenagers are about looking at me like you lost your mind. You could fast from Xbox. You could fast from a lot of those things. Guys, I'm about to step on your toes. Well, you could fast from your hobby this week. You say, God, I, I normally play three hours of golf every week. What would it look like in my life if I gave up some time? And instead of play, hitting the, the golf ball, that I hit my knees and cried out to you and asked you to do what only you can do in my life. I, I don't know about you, but I want to see a great move of God in my life, in my family's life, in the life of this church, in this community. If there's ever been a time that our world and our country needs a great move of God, it is now, amen? We need to be people of prayer, people of the word, people who fast and say, God, we want more of you. We want you to do what only you can do in our lives. And that he will show up if we will seek him with all of our hearts. Jeremiah says, you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you. So I wanna challenge you new beginnings. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, I wanna challenge you this week to pick a day Start small, know what you're going to do when you fast and then fast and get on your knees and hunger for God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time that we've had this morning. Father, I pray that this week as we get ready for another school year, God, and there's so many uncertainties, there's so much anxiety, there's so many unknowns, God, we can't even begin to describe those things and how we feel, and it, it just feels like we're walking in the dark. God, I pray that this week your people would get serious about their relationship with you, that they would fast, that they would say no to the lesser things that have been robbing them of their time with you, God, that they would get on their knees, get on their face, get in the word, get in prayer, that they would cry out to you and that we would experience a fresh move of God in our lives, in our church, in our communities, in our schools this year, that we would see revival break out everywhere that we look. And so God, that is what we are asking. God, thank you that you gave us your very best in your son. If there's anyone here who does not know him, Father, I pray today would be the day of their salvation. Father, move in their hearts, forgive them of their sins, save them, and reserve their spot at the table with you. Father, we love you, and we thank you for loving us. It's in Christ's name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen.